Chapter 11, verse 2. This is what the angel is going to say to him now concerning the vision of the war. Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise for Persia. Then a fourth king will be unusually rich, more so than all who preceded him. When he has amassed power through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a powerful king will rise, exercising great authority and doing as he pleases. Shortly after his rise to power, his kingdom will be broken up and distributed toward the four winds of the sky, but not to his posterity or with the authority he exercised, for his kingdom will be uprooted and distributed to others besides these. This is where we start getting really cryptic. Now, in hindsight, we have a really good idea of who all these kings are. But if you were Daniel, it's like the king of the north and the king of the south, and the king of the south will do this with the daughter of the king of the north and the king of the north, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, what the heck? I need to write this all down and get like an Excel sheet and a flow chart to help them figure this all out. But luckily, with hindsight, these, these details are so precise that there's really nobody else that it can match up with except for these figures. We are going to get super detailed as we go through here. And there's a lot of names here. There is a chart on the bottom of 42 and going into page 43 with a lot of these kings matching up with their chapters. Here's your Excel sheet to kind of help you deal with this. The first four verses specifically deal with Persia and Alexander III. The question is, who are the three kings and then the fourth of the Persian Empire? Now, we know that these four apply to the Persian Empire because he specifically says three more kings of Persia will come and then a fourth. We are specifically dealing with the Persian Empire. There's all kinds of kings, but most people believe after Cyrus II, we're talking about Cambius II, his son, and then he got opposed and dealt with and Smyrdes, poser king, that tried to take the throne, but then he got assassinated within one year. Darius I was then a relative of Cyrus II, who was voted in to deal with the, the poser king before him, and then Xerxes I. These are probably the four kings. But there are many other Persian kings after these four before the Persian Empire fell, but they really weren't that powerful. They really weren't that mighty. Xerxes I is the only one that seems to match up with the description of him opposing Greece. Xerxes was actually the one who went and attacked Greece and tried to stop them from crossing the Hellespont Strait and invading what we know as modern-day Turkey, which was the Persian Empire at that time, and coming in. The fact that he historically, outside the Bible, matches up really well with that description of opposing Greece makes us assume that therefore the three kings, that the other three kings are the ones that immediately preceded him. What he's talking about is Xerxes I. Now, even though the Persian Empire continued on after Xerxes I, it was Xerxes I's opposition to Greece and his failure to stop them that then allowed Greece to begin to gain a foothold in the Persian Empire and start taking over. So even though Darius III would be a good king and Xerxes I would be a strong king, 
They're nothing compared to the first five kings. Cyrus the second, Cambius the second, and Smyrdes and Darius the first, and Xerxes the first. And it, most people believe that Xerxes the first failure to stop Greece is basically the beginning of the end of the Persian Empire, because that's when the Spartans basically opposing him failed and that launched the, the, the passion of the Greeks to unify for the first time under under Philip II and then Philip II became a brilliant military strategist who would ally all the Greek city-states together into a unified Greek people and then when Philip II died ruling over the first unified Greek empire or kingdom then he'd be succeeded by his son Alexander III who would then launch into the Persian Empire. So without Xerxes' first attack on Greece and failure, there would have been no spark to unite Greece together to produce Alexander III. Now, it might come out some other way, but historically speaking, that's the way it happened. This is the beginning of the end of Persia. So that makes sense that he says four more kings and then Alexander III, because Alexander III would be the next one. And that is chapter 4, or sorry, verse 4. Shortly after his rise to power, the kingdom will be broken. Sorry, verse 3. Then a powerful king will arise, exercising great authority and doing as he pleases. Once again, we see that pleasing, exalting himself. This matches up with the, the horned beast of Daniel 7 and the he-goat of Daniel 8. Shortly after this rise of power, his kingdom will be broken up and distributed toward the four winds of the sky, but not to his posterity, but the authority. Now, this is the four kingdoms. So on that map that you have, there are four kingdoms, and this is Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Cassander, and Seleucus. This is where we start getting into chapter 11, verse 5. And we're specifically going to learn about the king of the south and the king of the north. And this king of the south and king of the north language specifically applies to the orientation to Israel. So on the map, you can see in the, great, the Greek empire, the Seleucids map, you can see that Judah and Israel is right here. So immediately south of them is this brownish territory, which is Ptolemy. And immediately north of them is the Seleucids and the Orange Territory. So the king of the north and the king of the south is specifically named that way in their orientation to Israel. So what you need to know is that every single time we hear the king of the north, it is dealing with the family line of Seleucids I. And every time we hear the king of the south, it's specifically referring to the family line of Ptolemy I. These were the two most powerful generals out of the four that seized power over, over Alexander III's empire. Also, the reason that they're emphasized is that these people fought for control of Israel more than any of the others. Because in the beginning, a man by the name of Antigonus controls Israel. Then he loses the war between Ptolemy and Seleucid, who allied themselves together fighting him, and then Ptolemy gains control of Israel. And then Ptolemy and Seleucids go into war, and he loses control to the Seleucids. So the Ptolemy and Seleucids were always fighting for control of Israel. 
And the reason they were fighting control of Israel is because Israel controls all the terrain. And we talked about this way back in the book of Genesis. But all the trade from west to east comes through Israel, through boats. In the Mediterranean, you can't dock ships very well in the southern part of modern-day Turkey, which is known as Anatolia at this time, because those are cliffs. You can't really dock in Egypt very well because it's very marshy, and the wagons and big supplies don't do well there. So the only thing that is left for docking ships is Israel. And this is why Joppa, where um, Jonah fled to, was a very powerful harbor port of trade. And then likewise, all the trade between the south of Africa and going all the way to China was all through Israel. Because you can't cross the desert and you don't really want to go across the Red Sea when you could go across the Sinai Peninsula. All trade between the south of Africa going to China and vice versa, and all trade from the east going to the west across the Mediterranean and vice versa, all came through Israel. So he who controlled Israel controlled the trade. And so this is like being in charge of all the bus and train and airport depots and controlling everything that comes in. And so, of course, the Ptolemies and Seleucids want this desperately because that's where all the money is. And so there's going to be a lot of fighting for this land. And Israel, little dinky Israel, who barely survived the exile and is returning under three waves of powerless leaders, Rubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, are caught in the middle of all this. And so this is why God is focusing on these two kings more than anything else, is because they directly apply to Israel. And remember, all these prophecies really have nothing to do with giving you a detailed record of historical events. They have more to do with giving you understand the world's relation to Israel. We're only interested in the nations that are affecting Israel specifically. To make this really crystal clear for you, they decided to pretty much name everybody the same thing. <laughs> so, when it deals with the king of the south, that's the Ptolemies. And they're all named Ptolemy. They had another name. They're known as Ptolemy, duh, Ptolemy, duh. And they all had different names. This is their throne name. And so they had a name that they were probably given at birth. And we know those names. And you can go dive deeper into There's tons of historical things on the internet and that kind of stuff where you dive in, in history books. But when they took the throne, they took the family name, Ptolemy. So all of them were Ptolemy, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. Now, every once in a while, after this time period, after the, 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 the division of Daniel, and it starts going deeper and deeper and getting close to Rome, there were also some other queens that came into power. And so the Ptolemies, they named their daughters. And when their daughters came into power and had some kind of rulership as co-ruling with their husbands, they were all named Cleopatra. So literally every man was named Ptolemy and every woman who was a queen was named Cleopatra practically. And that makes it very interesting for history. So, and of course the most famous Cleopatra with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and Octavian was Cleopatra the 14th. So much later down the line. In the north, they made it a little bit easier for you because they're all named Seleucus or Antiochus. Every single one after that. So the, three, the two that the writings are going to specifically begin to zero in on 
is in Tychus the third and Tychus the fourth. And you can see there are more verses dedicated towards them than anybody else. So that's the focus that we're eventually heading towards. Verse five. Then the king of the south and one of his subordinates will grow strong and his subordinate will resist him and will rule a kingdom greater than his. The first one that is specifically mentioned, the king of the south, is Ptolemy I. He is the first ruler who began to rule. And the subordinate that helped him is Seleucus I. In the very early days, Seleucus' empire was being overtaken by Antigonus. Antigonus is this pinkish area coming in on the orange. And nobody had the ability to stop him from invading and coming through. And so Seleucus I fled to Ptolemy in Egypt, and they allied themselves. And he surrendered and, made, and said, acknowledged Ptolemy I as his greater master so that they could unite together and stop Antigonus. Antigonus. That's the subordinates. So we're introduced to Ptolemy I as the king of the south, and the subordinate is um, Seleucus I, one of his commanders, or the fighting against Antigonus. Eventually in 301, in a very famous battle of Ipsus, which is battles were named after locations, Antigonus was defeated. And Seleucus I left Ptolemy I and started building his own empire again. And they would no longer be allies ever again after that. They would begin to war with each other. And so the war specifically now focused on these two. So verse 6. After some time, after some years have passed, they will form an alliance. Then the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she will not retain her power, nor will he continue in his strength. She, together with the one who brought her, her child, and her benefactor, with all will be delivered over in that time. So there's an alliance that is formed. What is this talking about? Ptolemy was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy II. In the north, and Seleucus I was assassinated, and his son Antiochus I took power. He succeeded him. So Antiochus I was succeeded by his son Antiochus II. So Ptolemy II and Antiochus II were bitter enemies. They were warring against each other. However, they made an alliance in 250 BC by Ptolemy marrying off his daughter Bernice, the daughter of the king, to Antiochus. So what it says, the daughter of the king. That's Bernice. Bernice gets married to Antiochus II in order to form an alliance. Now, to make this a soap opera, Antiochus II divorces his wife, Laodice, in order to marry Bernice because politics is more important than a faithful marriage. And so he divorces her. He disowns his son that he had through her because if he doesn't disown her, then the son that he has with his new wife, Bernice, would not be legitimate, and the treaty and the alliance won't be legitimate, and there was no point in doing it. So he has to disown him in order to make the new son that he's going to have legitimate, so the alliance would become illegitimate. What is love? When Ptolemy II died in 246, Antiochus II divorced Bernice and took back his first wife, Laod Laodice. 
Yay, this is really confusing. After Antiochus II's death, reportedly poisoned by Laodiceus, Laodiceus had Bernice, her son, and her escort killed to ensure that her son, Seleucus II, would take the throne. She then poisoned her husband after he remarried her because hell hath no greater fury than a woman scorned. And then she killed Bernice and got rid of that son so that her son could take the throne. So... This is what you say. If you ever feel like your family is dysfunctional, just read history. Specifically the Jacob family and anything that has to do with kings. I'll go back to verse 6. After sometimes years later have passed, they will form an alliance, Antiochus II and Ptolemy II. Then the daughter, Bernice, of Ptolemy II will come to the king of the north, Antiochus II, to make an agreement. But she will not retain her power because she will be killed by the previous wife, Laodice. Nor will he continue in his strength, because he will be killed as well. She, together with the one who brought her, her child, the child who is disowned, but she's now going to put back into power, and her benefactor will all be delivered over at that time. Verses 7 through 9. There will arise in his place one from her family line, who will come against their army and will enter the stronghold of the king of the north and will remove against them successfully. He will also take their gods into captivity into Egypt, along with their cast images and prize utensils of silver and gold. And then he will withdraw for some years from the king of the north. And then the king of the north will advance against the empire of the king of the south, but will withdraw to his own land. Got all that? Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, one of her family, so when the writer says one of her family, that's Ptolemy III, her brother, succeeded his father, Ptolemy II, when he was killed. In revenge for Bernice's death, he attacked Seleucus II at Antioch in Syria and killed Laodice. He gained many victories in Asia Minor, and Ptolemy III returned to Egypt with many spoils, including the idols and the holy vessels that Cambius II had taken from Egypt to Persia in 525. He also signed a treaty with Seleucus II in 241. Two years later, Seleucus II invaded Egypt, where it was forced to withdraw. So you see all those details there. I know that you're going to, this is just, you're going to get clobbered with tons of names and information. But a couple of things I want to mention. One, there's a reason why we wrote this down. And it's going to get less and less like this king and this king after this king as we get more and more towards Antiochus IV. As we get closer to Antiochus IV, it will slow down. But I'm going to pause right here and say something. This is going to require multiple readings for you kind of put it all together. Even I have studied this a lot, and I don't have all this memorized completely because that's a lot of names. And I really enjoy this historical time period too. And it's still a lot of names to keep track. So you don't have to know it all by heart and memory. But what you do need to know is pay attention to how detailed it is. Okay, how detailed it is, how precise it is. This is hundreds of years before this ever happens. And God is laying out specifically the daughter of and the wife and the marriage and the alliance and the betrayal and all that kind of stuff. It is so accurate. This has led many people to say that this is, this is specifically the chapter that has led people to believe that Daniel was written much later 
than what it probably was because they don't believe that any prophecy could be really this detailed. They think it's being written hindsight. And this is single-handedly the chapter that makes people date Daniel much later merely because they're like, this is impossible. This isn't possible. So that's what I want you to focus on. Don't get mired down in all the names and stuff, but rather be wowed by the details. Verse 10. His sons will wage war, mustering a large army, which will advance like an overflowing river and carrying the battle all the way to the enemy's fortress. In the south, Ptolemy IV then succeeded his father, Ptolemy III. And this, he began to expand the empire. And the north, Seleucus III, his sons, succeeded his father and attacked the Ptolemies in Asia Minor, but died in an attempt to regain the land taken by Ptolemy III. He was succeeded by his brother Antiochus III, his sons, and the other son of Seleucus II. Antiochus III attacked Egypt and succeeded in gaining the territory of Israel in 217. So this is what it says, his sons will rage war. It's specifically talking about Seleucus III and Antiochus III. And revenge for what Ptolemy IV did, or sorry, Ptolemy III did, they attacked Egypt in return. One failed and the other one succeeded and started becoming very strong. Antiochus III is now going to be the focus for quite a few verses because Antiochus III became very powerful. And he's the one who's going to expand the empire and he's going to seize the land of Israel from Ptolemy. And so he's going to be the one who's going to be responsible for making the empire of the Seleucids very powerful and very strong over this part. So know, every time we talk about the king of the north for the next several verses, all the way until we get to verse 17, this is who we're talking about, Antiochus third. So verses 11 and 12. Then the king of the south will be enraged and will march out to fight against the king of the north, who will also muster a large army, but that army will be delivered into his hand. When the army is taken away, the king of the south will become arrogant, and he will be responsible for the death of thousands and thousands of people, but he will not continue to prevail. So in an attempt to recapture lost territory, Ptolemy IV attacked Antiochus III in the north in 217 BC with a large army of elephants, cavalry, infantry, and was successful in retaking Israel. Antiochus III grabbed Israel, and then Ptolemy IV gained Israel back again. And Israel was just caught in the middle like a child in a divorce. He was extremely euphoric as a result of this victory and indulged himself in alcohol and entertainment and a life of abandonment. He was so happy, like, oh my gosh, I just defeated Antiochus III and did what my fathers could not do, that he literally spent the rest of his life basically just getting drunk and pleasuring himself for the rest of his life. So most people are like, and when they get a job promotion or they're successful, they like celebrate for the night. He spent the rest of his life celebrating. So it's like... It was really impressive for him, I guess. That brings us to verse 13. For the king of the north will again muster an army, one larger than before, at the end of the summer year, and he will advance with a huge army and enormous supplies. Antiochus III then returned again, and he began to attack the east and the north. 
And then that gained him more and more power. He then spent the next 14 years conquering these lands so that he earned the epitaph, the great, so that he could then go against Egypt again. So rather than trying to willy-nilly just attack Egypt in revenge, he decided to attack many other lesser areas that he knew he could grab, building up his empire, gaining more and more wealth and power so that he can conquer greater empire kingdoms to gain more strength and money so that he can then go against Ptolemy without anybody stopping him. And so he, in that sense, that was very militarily wise, even though he's really evil. Verse 14a, In those times... Many will oppose the king of the south, and those who are violent among your people will rise up in confirmation of the vision, but they will falter. In Egypt, there had been increasing unrest due to Ptolemy's forced life of debauchery and oppressive rule. He actually began to oppress the Jews greatly, and a lot of people began to lose respect for him and his debauchery. This allowed the native-born Egyptians to serve in the Greek army. Ptolemy IV and his wife died of mysterious circumstances in 203, and he was succeeded by their infant son, Ptolemy V. This is going to give leverage for rebellion, because he's a king of debauchery. People have lost respect for him. Therefore, he's losing more and more power, because that's what happens when all you do is party. He allowed native-born Egyptians to begin to serve in the Greek army, and the Greeks didn't like that, because the Greeks were racist towards everyone. And they didn't like that, so that when he dies and the new son, the boy, comes into power, he's a boy, so they see that as weak, and that just is prime for rebellion. And that's what's going to lead to the second half of verse 14. It says that the people, the Jews, the people rebelling, the Jews rebelling violently rose up. Now, it's not exactly clear what this exactly means. The Jews rebelling violently, nor what succeeding means. At this time, there was a division among the Jews. Those who were pro-Ptolemy and those who were pro-Seleucid. There were some who were like, yay, Seleucids, we really liked it when they were ruling over us, and we hate that the Ptolemies took us back. And there were some who were pro-Ptolemy because they hated the Seleucids from coming in. And they had all different reasons for it. Some was because the Seleucids were better kings only because they were only there for a short time and didn't have the chance to really show how evil they were. And some of it was just, I made a lot of money under these people and now that the other people are in power and losing money, so I don't like you. Everybody had all different reasons, but they developed into a pro and an anti-faction. Wow, sounds like today. I mean, that's pretty much every time period. The people who rebel and succeed could mean one of two things. It can mean that the pro-Ptolemy Jews rebelled against Antiochus III, but were not successful in that they failed to stop Antiochus III from retaking Israel. Okay, so, Or it can mean that the pro-Seleucid Jews believed that they would have great freedom under Antiochus III and so joined him in his fight against the Ptolemies, but they failed in the sense that they, in a sense, rule would bring a far greater oppression than anything they had experienced. What does it mean that they rebelled and did not succeed? It could be that they tried to join Antiochus III and rebelled against Ptolemy, and they did succeed in the rebellion, but they didn't succeed in ultimately what they were trying to accomplish because Antiochus III ended up being far worse than anybody else before them. Or it could be the Jews supporting Ptolemy rebelling against Antiochus III, and they literally politically did not succeed. Either one. 
I think that it probably has to do more with it did not meet their expectation. Because there is a reoccurring theme throughout here and when we go through history of Israel joining the Assyrians because they'll protect us. And then the Assyrians massacre them. And then they join the Babylonians because they'll protect us. And the Babylonians take them in exile. And then they join the Egyptians because they'll protect us. And then Egypt betrays them. And then now they're going to join Antiochus III and he betrays them. And then when Rome comes under Pompey, they're going to be like, hey, we'll join you. And then Rome will betray them. And they have a long history of trusting everybody other than God. And everybody begins to turn on them. And so given that history that God keeps emphasizing over and over and over again, most likely they did not succeed is they didn't succeed because they didn't go to God. They didn't go to God for their defense. They looked to Antiochus III and he ended up being a scumbag. Verses 15 through 16. Then the king of the north will advance and will build siege mounds and capture a well-fortified city. This is Antiochus III. The forces of the south will not prevail, not even his finest contingents. They will have no strength to prevail, and the one advancing against him will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand before him. He will prevail in the beautiful land, and its annihilation will be within his power. The beautiful land is always Israel. It's always Israel. 203 B.C. Antiochus III, taking advantage of Ptolemy IV's experience, inexperience, sorry, and Ptolemy V's inexperience, returned to Israel with a much larger army and began to drive back the Ptolemaic army. The fortified city that Antiochus III besieged and took was Sidon, north of Israel. Sidon was just right above what we know as Dan, or the Sea of Galilee, on the coast of the Mediterranean. But they were unsuccessful. Antiochus III successfully retook Israel as far as the south of Gaza and Great East. When Antiochus III entered Jerusalem, the Jews welcomed him as a deliverer and their benefactor. They had huge parties in the streets because Antiochus III freed them from the oppression of the debauchery of Ptolemy III. And then, of course, fourth and then fifth. Little did they know the Seleucids will control Israel from this point until Julius the Caesar, Julius the Caesar, Julius Caesar comes into power. It will be specifically Pompey that they will surrender their independence to, then Julius the Caesar, and then Octavian. And at that point, it's all over for them. It is also under these Seleucids that they will experience the greatest oppression that they have ever experienced in their life. So the irony here is that they're celebrating them, him as their benefactor and deliverer, and yet his son, him too, but especially his son, the little horn that boasts and is prideful, is going to mess them up. Verse 17. His intention will be to come with the strength of his entire kingdom, and he will form alliances, and he will give the king of the south a daughter in marriage in order to destroy the kingdom, but it will not turn out to his advantage. So what does this mean? Antiochus III, under threat of Rome, made an alliance with Ptolemy V. See, everything would have gone really well for Antiochus III if it hadn't been for the new kid on the block rising into power, and that's Rome. Rome, at this point, is actually just successfully clobbering the Macedonians of Greece and Greece 
and the Carthaginians of North Africa at the same time. They're fighting two simultaneous wars, the Punic Wars with the Carthaginians and the Macedonian Wars with the Greeks, and they're successfully defeating them. By the end of the 140s, Rome will be the most powerful empire in the Mediterranean. And it is at this time that Antiochus III is seeing that new threat rise up. And so he decides to put his differences aside with Ptolemy and make an alliance. So together, as fellow Greeks, they can oppose the Romans. Antiochus III gave his daughter to Ptolemy V. And as she went over to Ptolemy V, he hoped that his daughter, Cleopatra, would remain pro-Seleucid and that she would then like feed him information and allow him to be the top dog in this alliance and that she would then single-handedly undermine Ptolemy so that they would become weaker and that then Antiochus III would be able to gain Egypt's power and military and then he'd be able to stop and defend himself against Rome. However, that's not the way that it worked. His plan failed when she proved to be completely loyal to her husband and even encouraged him to make an alliance with Rome. This is like the one time that you actually like see the alliance wife actually supporting her husband. And that doesn't mean like marriages don't work in the ancient world, but they don't work in the high political realms usually. So she actually said, hey, join Rome and then we can stop my father. So she actually was loyal to her husband, and that backfired on Antiochus III. So verses 18 through 19. Then he will turn his attention to the coastal regions and will capture many of them. But a commander who will bring a shameful conduct to halt, in addition, he will make him pay for a shameful conduct. He will then turn his attention to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall not to be found again. Now what does that mean? Antiochus III then turned his attention to Greece and seized many of the territories along the Aegean coast. The Aegean coast is the coast of Greece that the Greece fingers out with all these like peninsulas that like look like fingers into the Aegean Sea. Angry over Roman control in Greece, he crossed the Hellespont Strait. The Hellespont Strait is this teeny little strip of land right here between Greece and modern-day Turkey. But the Roman commander, Claudius Scipio, a commander will put an end to his insolence, that's the commander will put an end to his insolence, crushed him and drove him all the way back to the southern coast of the Black Sea. Antiochus III returned to Antioch, where he died a year later in 187 BC. So he was humiliated by the Romans. The Seleucids are not going to forget that. Verse 20. There will arise after one who will send out an exactor, a tribute to enhance the splendor of the kingdom, but after a few days he will be destroyed, though not in the anger or battle. He was succeeded by his son Seleucus IV, and taxed the people greatly. In order to recover from this defeat, you just tax your people even more, so that you recover financially. That is specifically the Jews, who are not going to be able to handle this very well. He learned about the great wealth in the temple of Jerusalem, and so he sent his prime minister, the tribute collector, or the exactor, depending on what your translation says, to seize the wealth. So he actually sent a tax collector to literally go into the temple and take all the wealth of the temple and take it out. Then the Jewish tax collector, Helidorus, poisoned him, and Helidorus 
was stopped by a divine apparition that nearly killed him, and he returned to Seleucus IV and had him killed. Betrayal, betrayal, betrayal. He betrayed the exactor, took the money, and then he saw an apparition, and then returned on to Seleucus IV and killed him. We don't know anything about this apparition. He just says an apparition appeared to him and scared him, and he went back and killed him. Is this from God? Don't know. Is this a demon? Don't know. 